Hey folks, welcome back to another bonus episode. This week we're talking to Chris Knotts. Chris, do you want to just introduce yourself real quick, let people know who you are and why people like you, and then we can get into uh, DevOps and learning and some of the things that we were going to talk about here? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Charles. Um, so my name is Chris Knotts. Uh, I am a learning practice director uh, for a company called C Prime. Uh, C Prime is a consulting agency, and uh, we basically focus on enterprise coaching and technology learning delivery. So we do some other things as well, some managed services and things like that. But primarily, we're really trying to help very large bureaucratic type organizations embrace <laughs> uh, uh, the shift left and to adopt better engineering patterns and better technology workflow patterns. So anything on the value stream that is impacted by that, we probably have something with. So my focus is on uh, specifically skills and uh, adoption of new new uh, behavior patterns and uh, quite a bit of tool training as well. Right. That makes sense. Um, just to give you a little background uh, that I have. Um, so way back early in my career, I worked for EMC Corporation, which was a huge company that did hardware and stuff. Uh, more recently, I worked for uh, Morgan Stanley, which is a large financial firm and, you know, just worked on a little, it was almost a side project of a side project. And yeah, it's interesting to ha talk about some of these ideas around training companies and shift left and, and how you do some of this stuff. When I if I was working on something important, it seemed like they were dictating all the brute things to me. And if I was working on something that was kind of not their central focus, then I mean, it, it, we, we'd have to beg for what we needed. So um, I'm curious, do, do you handle some of the management practices around that and the way that they handle that? Or is that mostly down to the individual contributors? Uh, no, we do handle that. So in, for my area in particular, we really we have workshops and uh, strategy sessions and executive enablement, things like that. You know, people that are often outside of the direct technology lane, if you will, um, because we know that those those types of sponsors and those types of leaders are folks who need to, um, you know, help manage expectations and understand the type of backing and sponsorship that their teams need and, and things like that. So that that's a big area of focus for us uh, in particular, just sort of, um, you know, from a leadership standpoint, from a management standpoint, whether it's you know, management constructs or just mindset and sort of the general culture that they set the tone for. Um, what, what, you know, that, and that's way outside of really sort of um, um, infrastructure teams or developer mm -hmm. teams or, you know, anybody who's dealing with technology. But I mean, our, our customers are all really kind of large, like dare I say, enterprise type customers. Right. So um, there's a lot of layers of management there. I mean, there's a lot of uh, bureaucracy there. Um, there's a lot of resistance to change, um, you know, and there's honestly, I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a lack of literacy as well, just outside of sort of the teams that care about DevOps and these lean engineering patterns. So, so yeah, we have a lot of content on that. We've got a lot of uh, really cool coaches who, um, deal with those types of people. That makes sense. Um, I might've jumped the gun a little bit because I think what people who are listening to this show want to know besides, you know, can you help my boss? <laughs> is uh um yeah so how do you start to evaluate what people want to learn or need to learn um you know identify the weaknesses in their process 
help build some of that DevOps culture and things like that? Like, where do you start with all of these things? Yeah, well, I mean, we always start by trying to meet the customer where they are. Um, so and there's a number of different entry points into the conversation that people will approach us with depending on what their role is or, you know, where they are, what their project is or what their background is. Uh, you know, I mean, we we feel like or what hurts. Uh, yeah, 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 for sure. Um, and different people have different pain points, but uh, you yeah. know, starting at starting at the pain point is a tried and true priority uh, for me. Yeah. Um, I think that that works well. Um, you know, I'll. Uh, uh, I hope that I, can I can I drop names on here? How rude is that? Yeah, I don't know. go ahead. <laughs> so um, I say this only because I'm uh, I'm a huge admirer and one of my biggest role models is uh, Jez Humble. Uh, and your audience obviously will know who he is, but uh, um, you know he's always kind of emphasizes start with the people's pain and minimize that pain mm-hmm. and sort of address it as early and often as you can. And I think that's a great rule, um, as well as just uh, it type sort of helps to reveal the lowest hanging fruit from an ROI perspective, right? I mean, yeah. the, wherever the constraints and bottlenecks are, always going to be where the pain points show up. And that's also just logically where you should start um, with the, uh, with addressing the flow. So um, yeah, that's a, that's a a huge point for me. Yeah. Right. So then, and and this is a question that I get asked on all kinds of technical topics is, okay, so what do I do next? Or what do I learn next? You know, where, where do I push in next? And I know that some of this is specific to what my pain is or what my position is or you know, some of the considerations that you pointed out, but, um, yeah, once you kind of get an idea of, of what people are dealing with, then yeah, how do you help them understand, okay, these are the next few steps that we need to take in order to either understand the problem better or solve it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think for me, it's kind of, uh, it, it's always for one thing we want to, we want to get to yes with the person that we're engaged with in conversation. Mm-hmm. And so that conversation, again, it's going to be different, right? Some people are really hot for a tool uh, and they just want to talk about the tool. And I mean, this is a common thing. And, you know, we don't we don't punt on the tool conversation. We're always happy to talk about those tools, but we try to go ahead and start framing that conversation around the larger story, uh, you know, the larger almost worldview, if you will. And, and the worldview is... Um, it's not really about tools first, obviously. I mean, the, the worldview right. is about, um, it's about value and people and flow and really, I mean, think to me, importantly, the relationship between humans and machines and mm-hmm. how we find good working relationships between those things. And, um, you know, it's also obviously a conversation about, um, you know, quality of life and, uh, and what's, uh, you know, what is valuable and what's valuable to you in your life as well as with your work. And, you know, these are all things that are kind of abstract, but, um, but they, they do inform the worldview and we sort of, we've got a fairly well-defined worldview there. So we, we start to try to, to talk about those things. Um, sometimes, you know, especially if you're, if you're outside of a technology team, um, people are receptive to large strategic themes. Sometimes even like there, there might be like a macroeconomic discussion there, you know, around technology adoption rates or why it's important. You know, a lot of times people outside of technology teams don't even always have a good sense for, uh, you know, what are the macro trends and why is it, why, why is, does it matter? Or why should I care? Mm-hmm. Um, so we really love to talk about that stuff because for one thing, that stuff in some ways is the most fun um, because it's the most fundamental 
Uh, and, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but for another thing, you know, if you, if you align on those things, then it helps you to, um, it helps you to define all of the other things which are subsequent to it. So uh, hopefully that answers the question, but you know, I mean, if you're, if you're talking to somebody from an enterprise PMO, um, that's going to be a different set of topics that they're interested in, um, versus a, a DBA. Um, and then that in turn right. is going to be a different set of topics uh, to somebody who's a product owner or some manager or executive somewhere, you know? So, um, but the worldview has a place to engage with all of those types of roles, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, so we always kind of start to try to establish the frame, no matter which type of person we're talking to. And that's fun. Um, and it also kind of starts to give us a little bit of a roadmap for how we can, we can make the conversation relevant to that person and where they sit. Um, but also maybe pushing them a little bit on on perspective from outside where they sit. Right. So it's it's interesting to me, uh, just just looking at this, and okay, you know what? Yeah, what's your worldview? What what you know? What are we basing things on? Um, I typically don't see people lo- leave their jobs because of a tool, right? It's usually because there's some misalignment with the worldview or the way that they execute things or things like that, and so. These are the problems that people want solved. I'm, I'm kind of curious, and this might get a little bit more into the meat of things. But, you know, where do you see the processes generally fall apart, or where where do you see the processes generally cause pain for the people who are trying to use them? Uh, well, sure, it's a great question. Um, gosh, I mean, I think there's a few different ways you could answer that, but I think I would. I would revert back to this idea of the human factors. Um, so when I, what do I mean when I say human factors? I think what I mean is um, factors like trust, for instance, um, or fear. Um, and these are things that have a, they have a surprisingly practical set of consequences if you, if you look at them. You know, I mean, a lot of, um, a lot of the classic DevOps conversation is around incentives and alignment of incentives and things like that. Um, and I think right from the early days, what you see is that, um, you know, when there's when there's fear at play, uh, it really colors the incentives um, in a bad way. Uh, and it colors the incentives in a way that uh, prevent you from aligning the type of things that you need from a process standpoint. Uh, from a flow standpoint and things like that to to be able to achieve, achieve the promise <laughs> that we're so interested in, um, you know, as well um, uh, factors like trust on the positive side or, you know, the ability to kind of be brave or take risks. You know, you mm-hmm. want to find ways to bake those sort of human factors right into the business process uh, in the job description, because those are the things that are ultimately going to um, you know, press forward into value creation and value creation is what we're primarily interested in. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, that, that's where I would start. Um, and then obviously there are certainly process specific things that you can talk about, you know, just as there are tool specific things, but, you know, it's worth a conversation with people just to kind of take their temperature on, um, you know, are people afraid to try new things on your team mm-hmm. or, you know, are, are people, um, are incentives such that there's a need to, cover your butt on stuff rather than, you know, you feel empowered, you know, you're not going to get your hand slapped if you just, uh, you have a cool idea and you try it and, you know, we can worry about scaling it later or something like that. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a line that you have to skirt because I mean, there are very real concerns around security and compliance and things like that. Like controls are a good thing. You know, we don't want to throw that out the window, but, um, but you also, you got to find ways to bake in these sort of positive forward leaning almost emotions you know from from the team standpoint right 
Well, and I've definitely worked at places where, yeah, the the lack of trust basically boiled down to you know political gamesmanship, and you know, or or people wouldn't play as as hard as they could because they yeah they were worried that somebody was going to come in behind them and you know knock them down or mess them up or whatever and you know and so you you had to kind of walk or run try and run and make sure that yeah nobody was coming in to swoop in and, and cause you issues and um yeah that goes a long way but yeah it is in a lot of in almost all the cases that i see where software has a problem it boils down to the human stuff right i mean sometimes it's regulatory or you know technical things but most of the time you know if people feel safe going out there and trying to do the right thing then yeah you make a ton more progress because they they are not afraid to try new things or afraid to uh ask a question when they have it or things like that so yeah, yeah I, and I, totally I, feel I, I mean it's uh it, it's a heady brew right but like it's also it's yeah. generally based on precedent you know I mean, people usually have good reason you know there's usually a historical uh, aspect to these things and mm-hmm. people will people will judge what they anticipate based on what has already happened and so if if what has already happened uh, demonstrates that um, there's risk there and and there's not a safety culture there's not psychological mm-hmm. safety um, right you know as, as an aside I should say I think psychological safety is I believe starting to be a, a more relevant topic just in the commercial world that we work in, mm-hmm. um, which is pretty cool. Uh, but there's kind of a rising awareness, I think, that that factors like that are pretty important. Um, you know, right. pretty important to um, retention and uh, you know good team dynamics and things like that. But I mean, that's I don't know. It's just it's a recent development, um, and it's just something I've noticed. So thought I'd throw that out there. No, absolutely. And I think I think we're also seeing companies be rewarded for it, right? Where, yeah, then somebody comes in with an idea and they're not wondering, am I going to get my head handed to me if I bring this up, right? You know, I know this is the answer to the problem or an answer to the problem, but, you know, or this is a way that we could move forward more quickly or whatever. Yeah. And just, yeah. you know, feeling like even if it's not the direction we go in, I'm not going to be punished for bringing it up. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm I'm kind of curious though as we kind of get into this and some of these human factors, how do we get those to translate back into some of the technical things? You know, you talked about tools or technologies or you know way, ways of approaching those things, because um, usually there's some aspect of that that people are trying to solve, right? And you solve some of it with the people and the way the people work and the way the people feel about their work, and then some of it you have to solve with the technology or the tool. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, in some ways, the, you know, the the technology of the tool is um, where the rubber hits the road, you know, right. so it's not going to work well if you don't have these human factors dealt with. But I mean, I'm not suggesting that uh, you don't have really detailed conversations about tooling or the uh, mm-hmm. the technology as well, you know, and in some ways it's like, if you can get the human factors sorted out that then the technology is the fun part because the right. the technology is where you have all of these amazing power tools uh, that allow you to force multiply your intentions. So once the intentions are in order, um, you know, and you, you've kind of got that stuff uh, under your belt, um, now let's play with the power tools and that's fun. 
mm-hmm. know, it's obviously it's not fun if somebody gets hurt because they don't know how to use a power tool and there there's not a, a good safety protocol there. But but once you have that and you're skilled and you know what you're doing, mm-hmm. then, um, you know, you can get a lot of amazing things done with a good set of power tools. Right. So, um, you know, I think uh, you definitely want to always tie things back to. All right. What's the technology implementation? Um, right. But to answer to answer your question directly, I mean, I would think, all right, if we're if we're thinking about um, if we're backing into the tool conversation from the human factors conversation, um, we've talked a little bit about ingredients like fear and psychological safety and bravery and, mm-hmm. um, you know, executive sponsorship and things like that. All right. What do those have to do with technology implementation? Um, well, I think for one thing, you know, this could this could be its own episode, so I won't get into detail. But yeah. I think, you know, you know, uh, um, I think you could you could start with some of those things and say, OK, if those things are true, then uh, from an organizational perspective and from a you know a job description and a business process perspective, how do we translate the types of incentives that we want to cultivate, the type of, mm-hmm. um, you know, brave culture that we want to cultivate. All right. You know, what, what do job descriptions and, and business processes look like that support that? And you can do right. that, you know? And I mean, I think I spent years thinking about kind of abstract concepts like, um, fundamental values, you know, uh, and, and, uh, like organizational culture. And it was like, Oh, you know, the, the best, the best organizations who win the most are the ones who have these high performing cultures. And I was like, okay, well, great. But you know, what if you don't have that? I mean, is there, is there, is there something that you can do to actually change that? And it took some time, but I mean, you know, I think the answer in the end was actually there are things that you can do, um, you know, and and that uh, touches leadership obviously and things like that. But there are certainly, you know, if you are on a road to, cultural maturity so that you can do better with technology. Yes, there's things that you can do, right? So we'll just just leave it at that. Um, But, uh, you know, and then we get a step and a step closer to an engineering conversation. And, uh, uh, you know, certainly in a very complex organization, um, there's room to have process engineering and business process design discussions. And, and, uh, you know, let's come together and design business processes that support that. Um, You know, and you keep on, you know, always with an eye towards shifting left, right? Always with an eye towards the setting up of feedback loops, right? And, and, uh, you know, mm-hmm. you don't wait, you don't wait until you have the people who are holding the power tool, uh, have their work order in hand to get their feedback. You know, you're, you right. want to, you want to make sure their voice is present, um, from a design standpoint and from a, a logic standpoint, you know, so, so ideally all of this process design and things like that are being informed by, uh, downstream people who are going to be the ones who, uh, you know, for one, they're definitely going to, they're going to be the ones to catch the, um, the compound interest on either negative or positive uh, feedback, you know, or business process. Uh, so anyway, so you, you have those folks hopefully informing design decision. And then when it comes to to tools in particular, I mean, I think, you know, we're living in kind of this cool moment where uh, there's a lot of really amazing tools who have been designed sort of uh, almost like by the people for the people who understand these concepts. And so the tools are the tools are designed to support that type of thing. Uh, and so, you know, you can select tools to that degree or whatever, but I mean, you can also select tools that people want to use. Um, you can tie those things to business value certainly very easily. And then you can, uh, you can look for things that save people time, um, or are fun, 
you know, or allow them to more quickly get from idea to value or to test things in a safe way, mm-hmm. uh, you know, things like that. So, I mean, th- those all become tooling and tech conversations very quickly. Um, right. And then the final thing I would say is uh, some of the things, you know, a topic that I like the, the most and is the most fun when it comes to technology is just kind of, you know, what's emergent, like what's getting all the press and mm-hmm. what's what's getting, you know, where's the gold rush and uh, um, how, <laughs> how how valid is, you know, is there right. truly gold in them Dar Hills? Like, let's talk about that. And if there is, let's talk about the nature of that value. Um, and, uh, you know, engineers and technologists uh, I think enjoy learning and they enjoy staying on the forefront of what's going on in the tech world and they're really tuned into it. Uh, and that can translate to, to tremendous value um, in your job. So um, so that that's kind of how I would start to approach the tooling conversation. And uh, and then from there, you know, you, you really ultimately got to talk to the people who are doing the work before you talk about specific tools or how they use them. Yeah, I think it's interesting because, I mean, initially we started talking about uh, some of the ideas around the technologies and tools, and then we moved into the the people things, and then coming out of that, yeah, what I'm seeing is you're connecting the dots with not just what problem do we need solved, but how are we approaching solving it? What kind of culture? What kind of process do we have? And then what tools actually support that? And and then I'm, you know, I'm looking at it and I'm going, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, right? And then and then we're not picking the tool and struggling through it because it's not designed for the way we're going to work and and we're doing that because we didn't have the conversation and we didn't think about the way we were going to work in the first place and so having the feedback mechanisms and things like that um again you know it it kind of all ties together and one thing that you said that i kind of want to back up on a little bit is you said with a focus on shifting left and having good feedback and things like that so what are those kind of overarching principles that you have to have as you start looking at your people and your process and your tools to make sure that you're getting some of the fundamentals in place so that you can either do it right or not walk into some of the buzz saws that are out there that you, that you can run into. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's a great question. And I think I, I'm always a little gun shy about trying to stuff my sentences full of buzzwords, which is a really hard thing to avoid. Um, but right. but I will I will just come right out and say it. And I will say it's a lot of things. It's something that um, a lot of commercial customers are, are actually quite interested in, and they're they're ready to believe and benefit. Um, but uh, that is that uh, you really have to get your head around your value streams, um, and mm-hmm. that I think would be the the first thing. Uh, so, so when you say value streams, is that like revenue streams, or is that something else? Well, now that's a really good question. So there's different types of value streams and you run into this, Um, you know, from a DevOps point of view, I think that um, the way that we've approached the idea of value streams is that it's a uh, it's a bit of a process map uh, where you're, you know, you're trying to identify waste or you're trying to identify opportunities for improvement. Um, mm-hmm. But but it is, a, you know, it's a fairly it's a fairly it can be a fairly tightly sequenced engineering um, you know, map of how the work flows through the IT organization. 
Okay. Uh, but the, so that that's one flavor of, of value stream. And that that's the that's the flavor that I was introduced to when I first got engaged in the DevOps community years ago. Um, you know, the idea kind of from a lean perspective, you know, you would take mm-hmm. uh, you would take this lean value stream mapping idea sort of and, and apply this VSM idea to IT workflows. This is not a new idea. Right. So I'd be surprised right. if your audience um, hasn't heard this a million times. Um, but, you know, the, the interesting thing is that there, the idea of value streams has been, I almost want to say co-opted by, uh, by other areas of, um, you know, there's certifying bodies and management framework organizations out there who uh, have written the concept of value streams into their, their frameworks as well. But, um, but, you know, there's an idea that, you know, you're talking about a tactical value stream. If you're looking at the IT level, you know, you're mm-hmm. talking about time cycles and, you know, waste and, and how quickly something can get done. And, and, you know, that's fairly easy to understand. But if you, if you move up in the organization from that, a lot of times those types of teams represent um, shared services and, you know, mm-hmm. they're, so they're, they're getting hit with um, all kinds of, of intake. Um, and a lot of times, you know, for whether there's a good excuse for it or not, a lot of customers, especially at the technology level, they don't have good processes to, to juggle this type of intake and to apply like economic rubrics to their decision making so they can really have mm-hmm. uh, a prioritization techniques and things like that that make sense from a unified system-wide perspective. Um, you know, a lot of times they do the best they can, they prioritize the best they can, but um, there's not necessarily like a, an officially blessed, um, you know, system of prioritizing. So so in order to do that type of prioritization, I mean, for one thing, you need like your, your teams and your organization's economic rubric so that you can apply that type mm-hmm. of economic judgment to it. And only you guys can come up with that, right? Like, I mean, we can give you some place to start. There's some examples out there, um, but ultimately you need you need an economic set of criteria that works for for your folks, right? So in that spirit, as you start to determine, all right, well, now we're, we're a little bit outside of the technology department if we're going to come up with those rubrics and if we're going to come up with ways to prioritize from an economic point of view. So that that's not really, that's a business conversation. You know, that's not a technology conversation. And so in, in our commercial customers, a lot of times they... Um, they deal with that type of work management uh, with a PMO or uh, with a program management practice or uh, mm-hmm. often often with a portfolio management practice or with a framework or whatever. So, um, But there's huge ranks of people whose job it is just to deal with that type of stuff. And this is, uh, you know, this is sometimes um, the like the what, again, I've heard Jez Humble refer to as the fuzzy front end, um, if you're mm-hmm. dealing with the, the upstream business analysis type functions, um, or you, the mushy middle, you know, you hear that term sometimes. Right. Um, but, uh, but basically, these are management conversations. And these are product, these are product management conversations too. at least right now they are there's a there's sometimes there's a project management component as well. Although we, we see a big, uh, trend in industry to start orienting these value streams away from the idea of projects and towards the idea of products. And that's a, that's a big thing right. for us. Um, C prime specializes in how to do this as well. Um, but, uh, but anyway, at some point 
all of the work that's going to flow through these shared services and you know needs this prioritization logic applied to it and things like that at some point you really would like to think that there's a there's a unified logic that determines what is going to get the most investment you know what ROI do we expect from that what's the priority i mean we can't do it all at once um, and there's more ideas than you can shake a stick at about how to realize right. value. So, you know, so you need to be able to have mechanisms in place to validate those value propositions. You know, mm-hmm. is this, is just this, just somebody's pet project or it's a bee in their bonnet that somebody thinks is going to be the next big thing and, and they have power in the organization. So now they're championing this, but you know, there really hasn't been any rigor applied to validating the value proposition. And that, as you can imagine, like that leads to a lot of waste. So, so anyway, to tie it off, um, the, uh, the, the idea is to have good portfolio management, um, in a way that is also lean. Um, also, you know, it's really the, it's the same core principles that we would associate with DevOps. Um, but instead of being applied explicitly to just the technology team work, it's being applied to product decisions, strategic decisions, and things mm-hmm. like that at, at the management level and, and at the portfolio level. Right. So I kind of derailed you answering my question. Um, but I think it was worth it because, you know, just understanding, yeah, where where you can really get some bite on, you know, your processes and, and you know, where the value is and, and what you can, uh, where, yeah, where the value essentially comes from, from your organization. Um, it makes a lot of sense. But yeah, so going back to the original question, um, what are these overriding principles then that we need to focus on in order to you know, maximize these value streams. Sure. Well, I mean, I guess if you really wanted a good place to start, and again, your audience is probably super familiar with this, um, but it's the the old idea of the theory of constraints. Um, it's kind of gets back to your pain point. Point said point twice. Mm-hmm. Uh, the pain point point that you that you made earlier. Um, but identifying the constraints is where you have an opportunity to unlock greater capacity um, and, right. to, and to increase your flow. So, um, you know, again, just as you would need to have rubrics in place to sort of identify uh, value and uh, gauge value and to prioritize, you know, you, you would like to have rubrics in place to be able to identify constraints. Um, so right. that's that's where I would start. And then from there, you know, I guess <laughs> I have to say that you know, the constraints usually look pretty similar, um, you know, or at least they they often fall into a small family of themes. Um, so we when we engage with somebody to start to look at what those uh, core principles are, we always kind of start out of the box with these common themes. Um, and uh, and we, we you know, we'll talk about those. Nine times out of ten, one of those themes is very interesting and resonates with uh, with our customer, and so um, now you're having a, a conversation about that. Um, but uh, and then you know from there you can get into more detailed conversations about identifying opportunities for automation and, and things like that. Um, and um, you know there's just gazillions of opportunities for that right now. Um, so uh, does that answer the question? Mm-hmm. I think so. So just kind of coming back to this last idea, and that is, um, I mean, a lot of the things we're talking about, I've seen some companies that seem to do them really well, and some of them that really don't. And so, you know, you mentioned that you're in this training and education arena around these ideas. And so if, let's say that I'm somebody who doesn't understand some of these ideas, or 
I'm hearing what you're saying, and it seems like the next step may make a lot of sense, but the one after that, I'm just not sure where to go. So what what resources are out there for people to get trained up or to learn about this or to get ideas of things that they can do to, you know, maximize their value streams and, you know, deliver for the company that they're working in and make sure that all of their customers are satisfied and, and, and that we're moving in the right direction to, to make all of this work. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, there's tons of resources out there. I think the, um, the first thing I would say is it really behooves you if you're in that type of a position to embrace your sense of curiosity, right? Um, you know, that, that, um, being curious is, um, almost a prerequisite because, you know, if you want someone to prescribe uh, resources to you or learning, then um, I think you're already a step behind from sort of your, uh, the core place that you want to be, which is that you want to be interested and curious, you know, and you want interested, curious people making up your teams. Um, but, uh, but from there, I mean, I think, you know, I, I, this is a heavily personally biased <laughs> list, obviously, mm-hmm. but um, I've got uh, some of my favorite uh, thought leaders that I like to follow, um, you know, again, happy to share those if you want. Um, but some of these folks have been really influential, um, in their books, I think have been indispensable. Um, so, you know, I definitely would encourage people to, uh, to read, um, you know, if you're talking about a, a truly, uh, novice type of person who maybe doesn't have a whole lot of exposure to where we are with DevOps in 2023, then, um, certainly, you know, you want to read uh, all of uh, Gene Kim's books, you know, and you'd want to read uh, right. Jez Humble's books, uh, you know, get on, get on YouTube and look up Jez's keynote talks that are on there. That uh, honestly is some of the coolest content that I've encountered. Um, you know, uh, also the uh, the book that um, uh, Barry O'Reilly and John Molsky and Jez Humble wrote, uh, Lean Enterprise, a couple years ago. That that's been uh, it's been more than a couple now, I guess. But uh, it's a it's a not a long read, um, but it's fantastic, uh, and I think it you know it, it addresses a lot of these questions that we're talking about in a very practical way. Um, both both the tech questions and the human factors questions. Um, you know, another really cool uh, person that I really have enjoyed learning about more and he has a uh at least last time i checked he he has a a whole collection of essays that he has written which have been um super illuminating for me but that's uh paul graham the founder of y combinator Mm -hmm. um yeah love love the way paul thinks about things especially when it comes to kind of um making bets on value and, and making investment decisions and um, a lot of it actually informs that portfolio conversation about you know how do you how do you decentralize risk in in a portfolio and um, generate a higher a higher assurance of value return from an aggregated level uh, by managing a portfolio of many small bets you know versus uh, sort of what um, Paul's VC peers did back, you know, back when, I mean, I think there's a lot of incubators and things these days, but, you know, when Y Combinator came to the game, there weren't a lot of VC motions that looked like that. Um, you know, it was right. kind of like, it was like big bets and and uh, investors who were really all up in the, uh, the product, you know, and really wanted a lot of front end definition around the TAM and the, the market segment mm-hmm. and what the product was and stuff like that. You know what I mean? And, you know, that works. I mean, people have made a lot of money doing that or whatever, but I just thought that it, it makes a lot of, you know, if you're in a, let's say you're in just a normal technology job. Um, well, you can't like, you can 
essentially you can't replicate anything about that conventional VC behavior in the way you manage your own products or the, the way that you take new features out. Um, but you can learn right. from Paul Graham's way, right? Like there's a lot of really practical stuff there about about um, you know how you manage and scale and, and innovate. Um, so so Paul Graham for sure. Um, PaulGraham.com. He's got his essays there. At least last time I checked. Um, but uh, um, those are those are binge worthy essays. I'd say um, I could go on, but those are a few examples. Awesome. Um, we're kind of getting toward the end of our time. So I guess the other question is is if people want training from from C Prime or you know to reach out to you and ask you questions. I mean what. What's the best way to approach that? Uh, you know, the easiest thing is probably just to go to cprime.com. Um, there's a there's a real person behind our uh, live chat uh, there, um, or you can email us. Um, you know, we're certainly on LinkedIn or whatever. But yeah, cprime.com is the best place. Uh, just go there, and um, you can hit us up in the chat. Um, I know all the people who. Um, man the uh, live chat they're, they're colleagues of mine for a long time and uh, they can get you in touch with me and um, you know or you can you can find me on cprime.com and just reach out it's perfectly fine all right sounds good well uh, I'm gonna go ahead and wrap us up but this was this was fun and you know I, I think we explored a lot of areas that that people struggle in and so yeah hopefully it'll, we can help identify some of those and give people ideas where to go to get help yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, can, can I ask you a question before we adjourn? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> um, you know, I've mentioned a couple times that, uh, I, you know, sometimes I feel like I'm um, trotting the treading path on some of these concepts, although they're still uh, quite valid, you know, but I'm curious from mm -hmm. your point of view, um, you know, are there, what, what are the things that your audience is most interested in these days, you know, especially things that might be newer topics of conversation? Right, so... Um... So I run this podcast network of all of the different shows. Adventures in DevOps is one. Uh, most of the other shows focus on software development practices. And so what's interesting is with when we talk about shift left, it depends on who I'm talking to mm -hmm. and, and what their position is and what their concerns are, right? And what I see, especially in this area, is that some companies do this really, really well, right? They integrate the dev and the DevOps and because most of the people I talk to are developers, not DevOps folks, um, right? But by having that well integrated, by having the feedback loops, by having the, you know, the clear delineation of how we do things in these processes and the things we've talked about, what they wind up doing is it makes everybody's job easier and it makes it so that we understand where the concerns are, right? So um, if I'm a developer and I'm working with a DevOps engineer, I can understand the concerns that they're trying to solve. And if I'm a DevOps engineer, I can understand the kinds of things that the developers are concerned with and the directions they may move in. And so that that's kind of the, the, the appeal to me is that, you know, if I can bridge that gap, that really helps. Now, as far as like hot topics that I'm hearing about, a lot of it really just comes down to, um, I think people are talking about AI a lot. Um, some people are talking about how AI can actually like manage infrastructure and, you know, solve some of the, you know, getting back to tools, right? Solve some of these issues or solve some of our scaling problems or whatever and and uh, make that move forward. But um, the thing that's interesting about it is that I don't see a lot of the conversations about how do we decide if this is the way to go or how do we decide if this is going to fit with our process? How do we decide if this is actually going to be more help than not? And, you know, I, I think it's a changing landscape 
Um, the other thing I hear people talking about some is just our tools are not perfect. And so, you know, whether you're using Kubernetes or you're pushing to, you know, AWS or something else for your infrastructure, right? Or whether you're using uh, GitHub or Bitbucket or something like that for your, um, for your code or whether you're, you know, so all the different tools that come into parts of our process. Um, I, I hear people talking about some of the deficiencies of some of these tools and how to solve them. And, and that's always interesting, right? And what I find is the, the companies that seem to do the best are the ones that have those conversations like we talked about here. And then, you know, it's like, okay, well, you know, what solves our problem now and what is coming, you know, cause GitHub keeps innovating things. Uh, GitLab, I see innovating things. Um, you know, some of these other companies are innovating in different areas. And so it's, we're going to keep an eye on it and we know about where we want things to land, right? What problems we want it to solve for us. And then, you know, how does it do it? But um, it's fascinating to me also just in, from the standpoint of what changes and what doesn't, right? Uh, a lot of the DevOps movement came out of the agile development movement. And so you see a lot of those parallels in the way that we work. And some companies, it's completely haphazard, and some companies really get it. And sometimes the conversation is just around how hard it is to get work done because they're not really adopting some of the people solutions and they're looking for their tools to solve them. And I see a ton of those conversations. How do we blah, 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 we're using these tools. And the answer is, is you've got to give your people a vision, get them on board, help them understand what you need them to do, help them understand how it fits into the broader scheme of things in the company. And all of that stuff is hard. And so, yeah, just, just solving those things. Um, but yeah, I, I think the really hot things are just in the areas of either what new hot tool is coming out that's gonna make some process easier and tangential to that is the AI conversation and if, when, and how it's going to make a difference. Yeah, that that uh, makes perfect sense. The AI conversation, obviously, is you know there's the that gold rush I mentioned earlier was uh, kind of the one I had in mind. Yep. But um, you know I've been engaged with the AI community since about 2002, so about 20 years now. Mm -hmm. um, oh wow! Uh, before it was quite so mainstream, and you know from a DevOps perspective, um, engineers have been uh, integrating quite a bit of AI uh, and AI-ish type stuff. Uh, mm -hmm. ML ops and things like that, you know, for for a number yeah. of years now, you know. So it's really it's this generative AI and you know the promise of these LLMs mm -hmm. that really is like blowing up and getting all the press right now. But right. Uh, and that it is an inflection point just because of the incredible accessibility that all of a sudden has been mm -hmm. unlocked for people. Um, but uh, um, yeah, the generative AI thing is something that's a conversation that um, you know we're heavily engaged in here, and uh, you know I've actually used uh, um, my uh, GPT four account to craft um like some canvassing tools to to find some of those constraints and opportunities to uh, to use llm instances internally to uh to find you know where where can you save the most time where can you attack the lowest hanging constraint and that that stuff is really fun um so anyway uh, obviously obviously generative ai and these llms are are like flavor of the day but um uh you know rightfully so yep yeah, and you mentioned MLOps, and it's funny because that kind of brings it back full circle, right, is what can machine learning do for us? But we have a machine learning show on, on Top End Devs, Adventures in Machine Learning. And yeah, I mean, it's funny because 
we do talk about the algorithms and we talk about large language models, but the vast majority of the stuff we're talking about is for ML practitioners and it's about ML ops and, and data management. And so just bringing it back, right? These things apply back to how we run these things in the first place. And a lot of times that's not trivial either because the pipeline changes as we get new data sources or new um, information or new ways of understanding the data we already have. And so then we have to update our ML ops pipeline and we have to be flexible enough to take advantage of that. And then we have to work it back into that value, uh, uh, value pipeline that you were talking about earlier right into, okay, how are we doing this? How are we doing this better? How are we, you know, solving some of these problems? How are we breaking things down and putting them back together? And, and anyway, it, it's, it's really fascinating because I, I can see how it, it all connects. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's super interesting. Yeah. Well, I know right. where, I know well, where, I know you appreciate the time here, so I didn't mean to yeah, say no problem. on another another tangent but uh i can i can do tangents all day long so if you ever have a hankering oh, just give me a call then me too I, I do tangents all day i mean um i have to go get ready for another thing here in another 10 minutes but um yeah it's and and that's a, that's the really fun part of this is this like okay here's the high level stuff okay now what's what's this layer underneath and how do we do that better 100 percent all right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap it up here. Thanks for coming, Chris. Yep. Anytime. Thanks for having me. All right. Till next time, folks. Max right. out.